Good morning, family. I um, also would like to just say a word of appreciation for our technical teams, the musicians. There was a lot of scrambling going on. The guys had worked with a generator to make sure that everything was working. The ushers that kept everybody you know, sort of calm and directed in the right places. Won't you just give them all a round of applause and just appreciate all of them. We are hopefully getting towards the end of our solar project. So one of these days, the church will be able to run on solar with batteries, and then hopefully these kinds of challenges will be behind us. It's a privilege to be with you again today and, and share the word. I had such a great time last week. I was out at the Shear Church plant and uh, just was so special and so privileged to connect with the people. Um, but we've started a new a little series that we've just running for the four weeks, started last week. And uh, the, the title of the series is Naturally Supernatural. And in the series, we would like to contemplate on how do we live our lives as believers in this reality that we have a supernatural faith, but that we're supposed to live it out in a very natural world, in a very natural way. Uh, I want to remind you of how our story began as believers and in the scriptures in Genesis. If you remember in Genesis, we are told how God created the heavens and the earth and how he, in specifically on earth, created Eden and placed mankind in Eden. Now, one of the things I'd like you with me to remember and to notice about that story right in the beginning is how close heaven and earth was to one another. Almost like they were the same place. Think about it like this. When God created, the scripture says, the heavens and the earth. If we, if we use the word heavens, then perhaps we're talking about the space where God dwells. God's place. If we talk about the earth, we talk about man's place. But when God created in the Garden of Eden, can you notice with me that God was able to walk with man on the earth together? God could come down, the scripture tells us, in the cool of the day. And he would walk with Adam and Eve. He would have conversations with them. They could see him. They could interact with him. So they were living on this natural world, this natural planet, and yet able in the natural to have fellowship with God who lives in the spiritual, in the supernatural. So it's like in the beginning when God created, his intent and his plan was that heaven and earth not be these two completely separate realities, but that they be con connected, perhaps intertwined, sharing so much together. And that, that we could live with God on earth. It's not the same place, it's two different places, but very closely connected to one another, heaven and earth. God's space and our space shared together. But then the fall happened. And God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And one of the big aspects of what that word die means is actually that the spiritual and the natural will be separated from one another. That no longer will you be able to live in the natural connected to the supernatural. But the scripture says they lost their glory. And that's what that means. They lost the ability to fully see God, to apprehend, to, to, to you know, see him, experience him, interact with him while in the natural. And so now, if you think about it like this, let's say the, the heavens and the earth were sort of, you know, 
Like this. This happened. And now we have the heavens and we have the earth. And we have God and the supernatural in the heavens and we have us living on earth. Now obviously God is omnipresent. He's both in the heavens and the earth. But in terms of our experience, it's like there's a veil between us and him. Is there not? There's this challenge that we have. We can't see God anymore. We can't interact with him in the natural. We, we now have to, by faith, see him. Because the heavens and the earth has become separated. And so every human being that lives on this planet now lives in this reality where we are confined to a natural world, but we're aware that there's a supernatural. And we're trying to figure out now, how do we relate to the supernatural? And you find this whole, this like sliding scale of how people live between the natural and the supernatural. You'll have some people that are very much into the supernatural. Everything is supernatural. And while they're living on earth, they're trying to tap into the supernatural and live as if it was from the supernatural. It's like that is their reality and the natural is almost not real. It's almost like if you think of the Matrix movies, there's something behind all of this. And this that you and I experience is not really real, but that is real, the supernatural. And then you have other people that live all along the other side of the scale and they live that there's no supernatural. The only thing that is real is that which is natural. That which can be touched, tasted, felt, that can be tested, that can be empirically proven, that which is reasonable, logical, natural. And then you have everybody in between those. You'll have some cultures, for instance, that are far more looking at the supernatural and saying, life is from the supernatural. And then you'll have other people, groupings, that are saying, no, no, it's all natural. It's all scientific. And then, and then we have everybody living in between. Everybody's trying to figure out how much is supernatural, how much is natural. How much can be weighed and quantified and how much is the stuff that, that is, can't be quantified. And, and how do they interact? And as Christians, we are the same. Because we live in a faith that tells us there's a supernatural and a natural. And we're trying to figure out, now, how do we live in this? In, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and, and I'll unpack this a bit next time, but just want to mention this. He says this to the Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. He's describing this tension, this dichotomy. He's saying, if you tend to be more Jewish, you'll probably have a more spiritualized view of life. Particularly if you're from the Pharisaical grouping within the Jews, everything is spiritual. Everything had a meaning. If the clouds, you know, like this morning, I don't know if it was like that year, but when we got up this morning, it was misty. You couldn't see like 20 meters in front of you. And so when Natasha and I drove to the church early this morning at the south, it was like misty. You know, the spiritual people will go, there's a meaning. You know, what does this mean? What is the Lord saying to us? They're trying to prophetically discern. And they may be right. I don't know. But everything is spiritual. And then you have the natural people. Ah, you know, and they'll give you the weather reasons for why this is happening. There's nothing, there's no spiritual reality to it. Jews demand a sign. They want to know the spiritual 
Greeks want wisdom. They want the reason, the explanation, the, the, the logic. And Paul is saying to the church that you live in this world that wants to deal with this reality, but if you're not careful, it will pull you into one extreme or the other. It'll pull you towards saying everything is spiritual, or it'll pull you towards everything is natural. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. But, how many of you know that a but in the scripture is important? He's saying, some say the world is spiritual, some say the world is natural, but let me show you a different way. Let me remind you, let me point towards Jesus, because we don't preach that everything is spiritual, and we don't preach that everything is natural, we preach Christ crucified. Now what has that got to do with this? He carries on, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews. How is it that to the people that think everything is spiritual, Jesus is a stumbling block? Because isn't Jesus all about the supernatural? Didn't Jesus do all kinds of amazing miracles? Didn't Jesus pray for the sick and raise the dead and feed people with just a little bit of food and gave thousands food? Wasn't Jesus all about the supernatural? How is it that Jesus can offend those that look for the supernatural if he's so supernatural? And how is it that Jesus can offend the logical, reasonable people? The people that want knowledge and understanding. Because wasn't Jesus extremely logical, reasonable? Wasn't Jesus the one that they were often surprised at? And you know that even when he was young, they would say, wow, this man speaks with authority. He's got understanding and knowledge that we don't even know where he gets it from. Didn't in every interaction that Jesus had, didn't you see his extreme ability to reason and to, to discuss and to bring across knowledge and teaching? Didn't the same Jesus say, teach them my word? How can this Jesus offend the people that are looking for the logic, the reason? Do you let me tell you why I think that is? Because to the people to whom everything is supernatural, Jesus is too logical. And to the people for who everything is natural and about knowledge and logic, he is too supernatural. Because in Jesus, we have a way that is not a little bit supernatural and a little bit of the natural. We have a restoration that takes place where Jesus comes and he says, everything is spiritual and everything is natural. And he brings it back together. In Jesus, we have the restoration of the original project of what God did when he created the earth and heaven and earth was close to one another. Heaven and earth was a shared experience. You could live in the natural and experience the supernatural. That's who Jesus was when he came and walked on earth. He was the coming back together again of the natural and the supernatural. So we want to say, Lord, if I am a follower of Christ, teach me how to live supernaturally natural lives, where in my life there is this coming together, where I no longer live in this dichotomy, this tension, this being pulled into one space or the other, this being drawn into the extremes, but show me Christ and Him crucified. Now, the, if I go back to the reason we now live in this separation, we have 
heaven and we have earth. And there is a divide between the two. You cannot cross from one to the other. You live in the natural and you can't get back to the supernatural. Why? Because of sin. You see, because God inhabits, inhabits the heavens. That's where He is. Now, God is on earth. Let me not think that I'm confusing that. But this is God's space, the heavens. Now, if you want to be with God, you have to be able to be in His presence. What qualifies you to be in the presence of God? How can you be in the presence of God? So if I want to move from the natural back to the supernatural, or if I want to see these worlds restored in their harmony and, and their sharing together, there's a problem. And that problem is sin. Because sin is what separates. Why does sin separate? Because that which has sin cannot be with God. The Bible says our sin is a wall between us and God. We now live here in this world, this earth, that is under the curse of the law of sin and death. Separated from God. Because God lives in the perfect. Where there is no more sin. And so our hope is one day that we would be able to leave this broken, sinful world and go to heaven. Which means to go to live in God's space where the life is lived the way He is righteous, perfect. But now we're here, trapped in this situation, wanting access to God, but not able to get it. In Romans 3, verse 21, we read the following. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody lives in sin, falling short of this glory, glory being a description of this natural and supernatural in harmony and a sense of unity together. Not the same, not one, but a complete of a whole. We've all sinned and fall short of that. None of us can achieve it. None of us can reach it. But if, you, if you've listened to me as I read the scripture or read it with me, you'll pick up a word in here that Paul uses that is a very important word. And it's the word righteousness. And in this context of this separation, this us living in sin and brokenness, God living in holiness, perfection, goodness, righteousness, God is, Paul is saying, the key is righteousness. Being right with God. So that obviously makes sense. Because here I'm living in sin. If I want to go back to God and back to this unification of the natural and the supernatural, if I want to dwell with God, then I need to be righteous like God is righteous. I need to get rid of my sin. Because with my sin, I can't be with God. So the only hope of this restoration taking place is we have to deal with the sin problem. We have to get rid of the sin. And the Bible uses the word righteousness. So one of the ways to understand the word righteousness, not the complete understanding of it, but one of the ways to understand the word righteousness is righteousness is like an entry ticket. It's like what qualifies you to get into something. In 2009, I got an opportunity to study a master's degree through a, a quite well-known American Christian university. And um, so I wanted to pursue this opportunity, and so I reached out and you know, wanted to know, what do I need to do to gain access to the program? 
So they said to me, first of all, we need a transcript of your academic record. So I had to get in touch with my previous university, and I had to get a transcript of my BA degree, my honors degree, and my marks, and, and a reference, and everything. Then they said, we want you to write a, a, an essay to prove to us your desire to want to do this, as well as your English proficiency. So I wrote an essay. Then they said, we want, we want you to make sure that you can pay for this, so give us a letter that, that proves your financial ability to partake in this program. And so I had to do that. And then some other things. And all of that process, I had to go through to gain entrance into the program. If at any step along the way I proved not worthy, then they would not allow me into the program. And so I did the whole process. Once I was given access and they said, you have been approved, they told me which books I need to buy. They told me the curriculum, the, you know, how it works. They gave me access to the library, gave me access to professors. They did all of that, but only once I was granted access. That's what righteousness is. Have you ever applied for a job, and when you read the advert, then you send out your CV? You have to go send your CV, which lists your record. And then based on your CV, they will decide if they will give you access to an interview. That's what righteousness is. God says, if you want to be with me, you have to be righteous because I'm righteous. I'm holy. I cannot mix with sin. I cannot be anywhere near sin. I cannot have fellowship with sin. So if you have sin, sorry, you can't be with me. So prove to me your righteousness. Prove to me that you are righteous and you can come and meet with me. And if you can meet with me, then heaven and earth, there can be this coming together that can happen between the natural and the supernatural. Are you righteous? So he's asking for our credentials. God is saying, I want to be with you, but give me your credentials so that we can have a meeting. Now what makes you righteous? What makes you righteous is if you are perfect like God. You have been justified. The Bible talks, and we've already had that word mentioned a couple of times. In order to be righteous, you have to be justified. Now, that's perhaps a, a word that we go, what does that word mean? So to try and help us just get a handle on that word, let me apply it how we use it in our just every day. Because if you read it in the Bible, it somehow feels like it's a foreign word, yet it's a word that we often use in, in our culture and in our time. Right now, it's transfer season if you're a football watcher, follower. Some of us, you know, the season came to an end a while ago, and it's only going to restart in August. The Premier League, for instance, in the UK and other European leagues that many of us keep an eye on. And right now, it's the in-between, and the clubs are buying players. And if you follow this, and if you read up about it, it is astounding the amounts of money that is being spent by clubs buying players right now. To spend 50 million pounds on a player is sort of the middle of the road, average kind of thing now. That's over a billion rand for one player. And then they buy that player, and then they will pay that player like millions every week. Not every month, not every year, every week. So it's like a lot of money. And often when a club buys a player, the, the sort of fans and the followers of that club will ask this question. How does that player justify that salary? What, is, what has he done or what potential does he have to justify that salary? 
Have you ever asked that question? How, how do you be justified? Perhaps you've got a position at work and, and you're a, a boss or a leader or somebody you know, influential in your company and every now and then somebody will say, how did he get to that position or how did she rise to, to that position? What justifies that they deserve that position? That's the word justify, to be justified, is to, to deserve the place where you find yourself. So righteousness and justification relates like this. Righteousness is what gives you entrance into the kingdom. Just, justification is what qualifies you to get that entrance. So what justifies that you can be in the presence of God? You need to be righteous, so what qualifies your righteousness? What is your justification? I don't know if you, how many of you remember that great movie. I think it was 1984, the movie uh, Chariots of Fire. I know there's lots of younger people here that may not know the movie. You, you may have heard the piece of music. It's a great movie. It's worth watching. Chariots of Fire is a story in which there are basically two main characters that, are, that the story follows. The one is a man by the name of Eric Little who's a Christian. The other is a, is a character by the name of Harold Abrahams. And they're both competing, trying to win Olympic gold in the sprint. And so they're working very hard to be excellent, to be the best at what they do. And in the movie, there's an interview and somebody asks um, uh, Harold Abrahams, why do you do this? What motivates you? What causes you to spend so much time and effort and energy to try and win this race and to be the best? And this was his excellent answer. Harold Abrahams answered, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. What was he saying? He was saying, I want to matter. I want my life to mean something. And I've been given the opportunity that if I can win this race, I've got 10 lonely seconds and that will cause my name to be remembered. It will justify my existence. Now, if you look at me, you'll quickly realize that I'm never going to win a sprint race. I have never been able to win one and I'm never going to win one. So perhaps winning a sprint race is not my justification. It may not be your justification. But if you think about it, if you sort of break down our lives, we're all trying to justify our existence. We're all trying to say, I have been given 80 years or 70 or 90 or 50 or 40 or whatever amount of time on this earth to justify my existence, to express myself, to, to give a reason for why I exist. What justifies your existence? So I thought, okay, well, you know, that's a great question. How do you justify your existence? So I went to the place that we all now know to go and get answers. I went to artificial intelligence. And so I typed out into my app, and I literally asked this question, how do I justify my existence? I've been given the privilege to go on a couple of trips around the sun on this planet. I get oxygen for free. I get light. How do I justify being here? So I asked ChatGPT or whatever app I use, please help me justify my existence. And if you've done this before, it takes like a second and then it spits out an answer for you. It's fantastic. And this is the answer that artificial intelligence gave me. People find meaning in various ways, such as pursuing passions, 
contributing to society, forming meaningful relationships, or seeking spiritual beliefs. It's essential to explore what gives your life purpose and fulfillment. Self-reflection and understanding your values can help you find your own justification for existence. Isn't that fantastic? So ChatGPT basically said to me, if you want to know how to justify your existence, find what's important to you and do that to the best of your ability. Isn't that fantastic? So what he's basically saying is find the thing that if you can do that well enough and get that right, you will feel like your existence has been justified. So for me, it's never gonna be winning a sprint race. But perhaps I can justify my existence by being the best husband I can be. If I can be a great husband, if I can really love my wife, maybe that justifies my existence. Or if I can be a fantastic parent, if I can be the best parent that I can be, that'll justify my existence. Or, or perhaps I can, I can be the best engineer or the best coder or the best designer or the best driver or the best business person or the best entrepreneur. If I can be the best that I can be, that can justify my existence. Or, or perhaps if I can be really good at making money and have the most money, perhaps that'll justify my existence. Or perhaps I can be the first in my family to get a degree. That can justify my existence. You see, because then I, I've, I've, I've created value. I've added value to the earth. The earth is a little bit better than when I got here. It's off a little bit better than when I leave. I've contributed. I've, I've added meaning to my life. Somebody somewhere will be able to point at me and say, that person, I'm so glad he was on this planet or she, she was alive. That I've justified my existence. I've been good enough. And so that's what we do as people. We try and justify ourselves. Why am I here? And we all find our thing that really matters to us and we try and be the best. We know we can't be good and excellent at everything, so we don't even try. But if I can find one or two or three things and we're really good at that, that can justify my existence. And we work at it. The problem with that is, there's a couple of problems with trying to justify yourself in that way. First of all, who decides good enough? And based on what criteria do they decide? Who decides that I'm a good enough husband? Because I can decide I'm a good enough husband, but surely Natasha has a, a viewpoint on that. Surely she has something to say about it. So does she define for me what it means to be a good enough husband? Because if she does, I'm in trouble. Not all the time, but sometimes. Sometimes I just mess it up. Sometimes I'm, I'm just not good enough. So what does it mean to be good enough? How do you know if you're a good enough parent? Or a good enough entrepreneur? Or a good enough engineer? Or a, how do you know what's good enough? Is, is good enough you've done more good than bad? And who measures that? Who decides that? I grew up in a home where my father was a functioning alcoholic. So that was negative in his, on his scales. But on the positive, he taught us about how to love people from all races. And he, and he was quite like militant about that sometimes. So that was a positive. Is he a when I look back at him, do I think he was a good father or a bad father? Who decides? 
How do we measure? And, and what is the pass mark? Is it 50%? Is it 40%? Is it 60%? Is it age appropriate between the age of 10 and 20? It's sort of 17% is good enough. And now, come on, teenagers, you have to, like, you know, give them some space. Don't put too much on. The older you get, the higher the... Who decides? Now, every religion and every philosophy and every human being is living on this earth trying to figure that out. How do I justify my existence and what is good enough? What is enough? You ask the richest people, they'll say, if I have one more million, it'll be enough. It's never enough. I mean, I've tried to really be a good parent, but I can promise you I've messed it up. And if you ask my children, they'll say, mm, you know, he's, he's okay. You know? So we're all trying to figure this out. And now you make it even more complicated. And now we say, well, you know, I, I want to justify my existence. But in that, I'd love to have a relationship with God. And God says, okay, great. You want to have a relationship with me? Be perfect. My pass marks 100%. No failure allowed. Never ever are you allowed to think wrong, talk wrong, have a bad attitude, have an off day, nothing. If you've, if you've lived on this planet 100 years, and for 99.99% .99 of that time, you were perfect, but 1.001% you failed. Sorry, you don't pass. You don't make it because my standard's perfection because I'm perfect. I go, oh, I'm just trying to be a good enough person that other people may think I'm good. Now I've got God to, oh, that's too much. It's exhausting. It's complicated, man. And so you see this pattern repeated in church so often. Somebody lives their life and they're trying to be a good person. And then they come to church and they hear some preacher and they feel so bad, like, oh, I'm not a good person. Oh, I'm terrible. And the spirit comes and they're convicted. Oh, I should be a better person. They come forward after the end of the service and they say, please pray for me. I, I want to be a better person. I want to give my life to God. I want to, you know, and we pray, bless them, Lord, and we pray for them. And then we say, you know, you've got to come to church regularly, join a community group, you know, read your Bible, pray, and you know, and then we sort of give them an abbreviated list of these are the things Christians do and these are the things Christians don't do. Go for it. Be a, the best person you can be. Yeah, and they go. Yeah, and they work, man. They try. They come to church. You go to community group. They read their Bible. They pray. Yeah, and for a while it's going gangbusters. You know, it's like, yes, I'm just like so glad I found the Lord. But how many of you know it doesn't take too long? And then you start getting tired. I don't want to go to church. Ugh, you know, it's cold this morning. So I just go, Ugh, you know, and I, you know I, I don't have to go. I go I'll go next week. A community group. I can't hear that same story again. I can't, I can't pray. Yeah, you know, those people's chairs are just not comfortable. And it's load shedding. I don't want to drive it. I'm not going to go to community group. Ugh, you know, must I really read my Bible every day? Perhaps every second day is good enough. Because it becomes burdensome. It's exhausting. And so we sort of relax a bit. And then what often happens is mm, we start drifting. And we get back into the same old problems, the same troubles, the same things we used to.
And before we know it, oh, I'm far from God again. Then somebody invites me to church, and I go, okay, I'll go to church. And I've got this guilty feeling inside of me, and I come to church, and, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me that I, st-. and then I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more. I'm going to come to church mornings and evenings now. I'm going to go to community. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read three chapters a day of my Bible. I'm going to make better Christian friends. I'm going to find a better church to go to, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all in. And then you go for it. And then how long does that last? And then you're like, oh, you know, I thought this was a better church, but they just want more. I can't do this. And so people live this life trying to just be good enough on a human level and then on a spiritual level. And it's exhausting. And that not only is it exhausting, it's impossible. You can't do it. Because this is the simple truth about the gospel. The first truth about the gospel is this unkind, horrible truth. You are not good enough. Settle that. And you will never be good enough. No matter how hard you try, you cannot get the righteousness that gives you the entry ticket into God's presence. You can't work your way to it. That's why Paul writes... And he says this in Romans 3, verse 24. Remember in in verse 23, he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Nobody qualifies. And all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So he says, look, listen guys. You cannot do this. That's why God did it for you. That's why God found a way. Because you can't do this. You cannot justify your existence to the point where it will give you the righteousness that gives you access to the kingdom of God and to God's presence. It is impossible. You can't do it. Romans 3 verse 20. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. There's good news for you. No one. No one can get access to the kingdom of God by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So what what Paul tells us here is we're trying to justify our existence so that we can get righteousness, so that I can get into the kingdom of God. But God says, let me tell you what you have to be to be able to gain access. And he gives us the, the, the law, all these commandments. And the more we look at them, we go... I can't do this. It's impossible. And then we build whole religious systems to try and say, how do you get access to God? And the problem is the harder you try and do the law, the further you away you get from actually being able to do it. The problem is not the law, that the law is wrong. The problem is that I'm unable to do what the law says. Sometimes people think, and last week we spoke about grace. Sometimes people think Christianity is where God took the law away. You no longer have to live up to any standard. Anybody's welcome. God used to have an entry standard into heaven. He's now taken the entry standard away, and he's handing out tickets in the street, and he's saying, come as you are. Just come. Don't worry. There's no entry standard anymore. You can come with your sin. You can come with your brokenness. You can come as unrighteous as you are, and God will allow you into his presence. That's what people think God did. No, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem is that I can't do the law. The problem, the law is great. In um, 
Romans 7 verse 12, Paul says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The law is the standard. When I come and stand up next to the standard and I measure myself, I realize, I have fallen short. I can't do this. And that's what the law is supposed to do in our lives. Tell us we're not good enough. So it's like going to the doctor and the doctor diagnoses your sickness. How many of you know the diagnosis doesn't heal you, but you need the diagnosis? So that's what the Lord does. But then God said, but now you, you know you're falling short. And you will never achieve my standard. But let me give you the medicine. The law is the diagnosis. The medicine is the grace of God. Where God says, I will make you righteous. You cannot make yourself righteous. You will never be able to qualify for the entrance ticket, but I will give you the entrance ticket. And how did God do this? In Romans 8, in Romans, the early part of Romans, Paul is wrestling with this whole idea of how do I get in? How do I be righteous? And then in Romans 8, he begins to tell us. And he says this, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does no condemnation mean? It means when I stand up against this perfect law and it tells me that I'm not good enough, that's not the end of the story. It does not condemn me because I have another avenue. Another door has been opened. That door is Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to, powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, it could not do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. We, us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now what is he talking about flesh and spirit? Let me go back to my story, how the story started. In Genesis, there was the spiritual and the natural. One of the derivatives of that down the line is the spirit and the flesh. And so the flesh will never have fellowship with the spirit. Cannot. If I'm trying to keep the law, I do it in the flesh. And the harder I try, the more I fail, the more guilty I become. It's like I get entangled. Now Paul says, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of the flesh, which is the law of sin and death. How did that work? So let's imagine. So now we live in this reality. Heaven, earth. Perfection, holiness, purity, Sin, brokenness, rebellion, sickness, disease, failure. People here are trying their best to get to this, but they can't. So let's say, for instance, just to visually help it, this is perfect light, this is perfect darkness. So God says, I want you to come from here and to come and live with me. How do we do that? It's impossible. So God says, don't worry, I'll make a way. So God sends Jesus. The Father sends Jesus. Jesus being perfectly God and perfectly man. What does that sound like? Perfectly natural, perfectly supernatural. 100% God, 100% man. Jesus comes and he travels from the light into the darkness. 
And he comes and lives here in the darkness. And so when Jesus comes to earth, what happens? Suddenly, there's a little bit of light here. Right there where Jesus is, there's light. And suddenly we go, hey. Now, in our natural, we couldn't see this anymore. But now in the natural world, we're seeing the fullness of the revelation of God. The, suddenly we are seeing God again. That which Adam and Eve took for granted, we're suddenly experiencing because here's Jesus. Completely perfect, without sin. And he lives here among us. And he lives with us for a period of time and he never sins. He never gets contaminated by this darkness. None of the darkness comes over him. And he lives among us as the light. Now the problem with the light is it shows how dark it really is. I mean, we had a great example of that earlier today, didn't we? You know, if there's, if there's no light, then I also don't quite know how bad things are around me. I don't actually know how dark it is because I've got no light to reveal darkness. But the moment light touches on the darkness, the darkness becomes to be revealed. And suddenly this law starts rising up and we've got now this measure of light here living in the darkness and we go, Ooh, now we know how terrible we are. Now we know how dark it is. Ooh, that's not great. And so what did we do with the light? John 1 verse 1, the, the darkness could not comprehend the light. So what did we do? We tried to kill the light. Because we don't want the light. That's our rebellion and our sin. So we killed the light. We crucified the light. We put him on a cross and we killed him. And for like a day and a half, Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday morning, we thought, we got rid of the light. We were delighted. There's no more light problem. We can breathe easy in our darkness now again. And we killed Jesus, the light. <laughs> but guess what happened on the third day? Darkness cannot hold the light. And Jesus rose on the third day. And the light didn't just come back. The light came back with a vengeance. The light came back brighter than ever before. Because guess what happened when Jesus died? He united everything in the spiritual realm and the physical realm in himself again. And he came and stood here and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And Jesus is the light. And he says, what happened on the cross, if you read Paul, what happens on the cross is God said, all of this darkness I will put on my son. And he took this darkness and he died with it, but he rose in the light. So that if I choose him, my darkness is replaced by his light. And a miracle happens where God says, I now in Christ because I'm in Jesus, you no longer have to justify your existence. He's justified your existence on your behalf. And he, through him, you are declared righteous. Here's your entrance ticket. Come in and be with me. But we need to understand that this justification that we have received is supernatural. If you, the more you meditate on it, think about it, try and understand it, it blows your mind. Because it has forgiveness in it, but it's more than forgiveness. It has you being declared innocent, but it's more than your innocence. Let me tell you a story to try and illustrate it and then I'm ending. One of the members here actually sent me a little clip. It's a rabbi giving an illustration. And so this rabbi tells a story of a teacher that taught in a rabbinical school or something for a long time or a Jewish school. 
and he was now older, retired, and the school had a reunion, and so he went to the reunion. And at the reunion, obviously met some of his old pupils, and one pupil in particular came up to him and said, wow, it's so fantastic to see you, and like was so happy to see the teacher, and he said, I don't know if you remember me, and you know, he said his name, and the teacher was like, oh, I think I remember you, it's like vaguely coming back, you know, oh, wonderful, and you know, so great to see you, and how are you doing, what are you doing now? And the old pupil said, you know, I'm a teacher also. He said, well, isn't that fantastic? How did you become a teacher? Why did you take up teaching as a profession? He said, because of you. He said, you inspired me. Don't you remember what happened with me when I was a pupil in your class? Don't you remember that, that story, that occasion where you changed my life, forever made my life completely different? He said, no, I'm so sorry. I, I don't remember. You'll have to refresh my memory. He said, don't you remember the day that the other boy in the class, my good friend, came to school and had a brand new wristwatch that his parents gave him. And I was so jealous and envious of this wristwatch that I stole it. And I hid it in my pocket. And the, the boy, the friend of mine, when came to you and he said, listen, somebody has taken my watch. And will you please find it for me? And so what you did is you told all of us in the class to line up against the wall with our noses against the wall and our eyes closed. So we couldn't see anything. And then you came around and you started patting us down and feeling in our pockets if we had the watch. And so you went down the line with every boy and nobody could see, but you were, you were looking for the watch until you came to me and as you patted my pocket, you felt the watch. And you took out the watch out of my pocket. And then you did a strange thing. You continued to search everybody with their eyes closed. Nobody knew what was going on. Only when you finished searching everybody did you go to the boy and you give him his watch back you told him, here's your watch. And then you told us all we could open our eyes and stand away from the wall. You never told him who did it. You never confronted me about it. You never spoke to me. That changed my life. I never stolen again. And it's because of that event that I decided I can also make a difference in somebody's life. I'm going to be a teacher. Don't you remember that? Can't you remember that that moment happened? He said, the, the old teacher said, oh, it's a little hard for to me to remember. Because not only did you have your eyes closed, but I also had my eyes closed. <laughs> so I never knew who stole the watch. Now let me tell you, that is a fantastic story about grace on a human level. But can I tell you, God has seen your sin. His eyes aren't closed. That's not what justification is. Justification is not God saying, oh, it's too ugly, I'm not going to look at it. I don't know what to do with it. <gasps> I'm just going to close my eyes. And I'm just going to invite you in and hope that it's okay. That's not justification. You see, because if God is pure and perfect and heaven is a place of perfection, how can God allow one person with one sin to come into heaven? Because then heaven will no longer be heaven and God will no longer be righteous. And if he does that, why did he kick Adam and Eve out of the garden in the first place? Why did he judge them so hard and then later on say, ah, you know, it's okay. I feel better now. It's okay. You can come back. Justification is not God closing his eyes and saying, I don't see your sin. God knows every sin that you don't even know. He knows. He sees it all. Yet, he found a way to deal with it. Not to push it aside, but to bring it up in its full ugliness. And take its full ugliness and put it on the cross on Jesus. So that your sin is paid for. 
Your sin is taken care of. Your sin has been removed in that sense, the guilt, the weight of it, not because God doesn't see it. You're not, you see, because if you're a person that goes to jail and now you've served your sentence and you come out of jail, now you're free, but you're an ex-convict. You'd always have been in prison. God does more than that for us. He says, you're a convict, you're a sinner, but I no longer count that against you. It happened, but I'm treating it like it never happened. I declare you righteous. Or perhaps you went to prison and you served a number of years in prison and then they found out you never committed the crime and so they release you from prison and make you innocent. Now you can be innocent from that point forward, but you've lost. God says, not even that do I do for you. I do more than that. Because I take away the sin of the world. I declare you righteous because of what Jesus has done. I can have entrance into the kingdom. I can move from this state of darkness and sin and brokenness and be reunited with the Father. And I can now live in a world where Jesus prayed, when he taught us to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What is the project of Jesus? He's busy restoring, bringing this back. Now he's lived here in the light. Now every one of us that gets to know and meet him, we come into his light. And his light comes into us. And we begin to reflect and represent his light on earth. The earth is still dark, but suddenly there's lights breaking out everywhere. His kingdom's coming on earth as it is in heaven. And guess what will happen one day, the Bible tells us. One day, God will restore a new heaven and a new earth. What do you think the new heaven and the new earth is going to be? It's going to be a coming back together. Where we will live with God. Right now, we're living in that where God is working. In my life, because I've been declared righteous and have been justified, I'm living fully in the presence and living in the reality of my world is a naturally supernatural or supernaturally natural world. I don't have this dichotomy anymore. If you're a believer, you don't. You can live in both. A Christian is not freaky supernatural or only in the natural, it's both. And that's what the Spirit imparts. That's what the Spirit teaches us. How to live in the natural with the gifts and the power and the abilities of the supernatural. But from a place of in Christ. Won't you stand with me? Team, you guys can, you don't have to come up. You've worked so hard today. When we stand before God, the first thing that is necessary, the first thing is to do like the publican that Jesus, remember, told the story about, beat our chest and to say, I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing. That's the grace we spoke about last week. Unmerited favor. Your kindness. I don't deserve it. I can never deserve it. I can't come into the light. 
Our greatest sin is not the sin we do. It's thinking that we can be good enough. That's our greatest sin. That's what separates us. That's pride. That's why pride is the greatest sin. It's what separates us from God. I think I can do this. And some of us love long and painful lives to actually discover I can't. Can you just today say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Just quietly in your own heart, just say that to him. Just, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Lord, I pray for your, your blood, Lord Jesus, right now. Thank you that you supernaturally apply your blood, your cleansing blood, to every one of us that ask you for it. Because I can only be saved by grace through faith. I have to believe this. I have to accept this. I have to step into this. God did it for everyone, but not everyone will receive it. God wants to welcome everyone back, but not everybody will want to be welcomed. You have to say, I want it. Thank you, Lord. And then thank you, Jesus, that you come and live within me. And that you tabernacle with me. That I begin to live in a reality with God. The natural and the supernatural being restored in its union. Thank you for doing that in my life. Thank you that I can live in a world, in a reality of completely the supernatural and completely living in the natural. Thank you that you redeem both and you restore me. Thank you that I don't have to go to Forefather spirits, witch doctors, seances, healers, diviners to try and get a connection to the supernatural. Because all that stuff will do is deceive me and break down the link even more. But I can come to Jesus. I can come to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that when I've received you, you begin to do the good work in me. You begin to work in me that I will become and practically live out this righteousness that you have declared over me. That I can become in practice a good parent, a good husband, a good business person, a good friend, a good whatever, Lord. Not because it justifies me, but because I have been justified. I have found rest. I don't have to be exhausted anymore. Thank you, Jesus. And so I pray for every one of us and those online or on the radio with us. I pray right now in Jesus' name. May the peace of God just be upon you right now. Jesus said, are you tired and weary? Burnt out, worn out by religion. Come to me. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's possible because I'm going to do it in you, through you, and for you. Come, Jesus. 
So I just speak peace over every person in this audience and those joining us. Speak the peace of God. Bring rest to our souls, Lord, in your presence. And so that from that place of rest and restoration, we can respond and live these supernaturally natural lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As Letitia said earlier, if you want prayer, even as Debbie's word for healing, come. Let's pray with you. Anything else we can pray, please come. If you want to say to somebody, I need to get to know Jesus, and I need to give my life to Jesus, come and the team will pray for you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord be with you. Please remember, if you want more info about our church, you can go to the uh, foyer hall, and there will be people there to meet with you. Uh, But please, come forward for prayer, and um, just have a fantastic week and a great day.